This episode on Veganics is about a year in the making. Last January, I was in Southern California to speak at the Greenflower Media Cannabis Entrepreneur Summit. After the first day of the event, there was this incredible VIP party at the home of Aaron and Erica Justice. Aaron and Erica are the owners of Bud and Rose's Cannabis Dispensary in Los Angeles. The party in a gated community was packed with like seriously major players in the legal cannabis industry all across the country. There was this amazing spread of food, and the view of the mountains off their lanai was just incredible. The reason I mention this party is because they had this cannabis bar there with an array of flowers grown and sold by the Bud and Roses dispensary. You know, you could do dabs, or the bartender would pack you a bowl or roll you a joint or whatever. It was all, you know, very pleasant. The thing, though, is that each of the jars were filled with incredible specimens of each strain. For example, like the strawberry cough I had was like the best strawberry cough I had ever tasted. Um, Similarly, the black lime was the best lime I had ever tasted. And as I went down the line of jars, the various flowers had exceptional terpene profiles. And the ones I went ahead and toked had a flavor that came right through the smoke, even though I was combusting and not vaping. That's when I had my first veganically grown cannabis. You know, I knew of some folks that had experimented on and off with Veganics, and I had heard folks talk about how clean the tastes were, but I was really, really impressed and caught off guard. So I decided that I, like, you know, I needed to do a show about Veganics, um, both so I could learn about it and because I figured other people would be interested too. So off I went to find a guest for the show on Veganics. You know, obviously Kyle Cushman is at the top of that list because he puts out his line of bottled Veganic inputs. But I really wanted to do a show more from a do-it-yourself probiotic direction. And if Kyle was on the show, there'd be so many other cool things to talk about that we might not even ever get to Veganic growing. So, so I I searched the internet for a while and never really found the right person to interview. You know, everyone used to grow veganic, but now they include worm castings at least and, and some much more like even fish guts. So eventually I went to my favorite place to learn about probiotic growing and I, and I posted for guest suggestions on the Probiotic Farmers Alliance group um, on Facebook. Most everyone's comment was that veganics was not a thing and that some animal inputs were absolutely a necessity. But then Alan Adkison of Grokashi posted that was there's this one guy to talk to who was an old school probiotic grower, breeder, and high times writer, and his name was Nebu. That's N-E-B-U. So it took me a few weeks to find Nebu in the underground, but I did find him growing and working in Oregon. And he's my guest today on Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and today we're going to talk about veganic growing and whether or not it's still a thing. Welcome to the show, Nebu. Thanks for having me, Shango. I'm so glad that you could make some time to be on the show. So, you know, we know that organic growing or natural growing is how it always was before synthetic fertilizers came about. And then, you know, the time of better living through chemistry happened and, and, and you know, or, organic natural growing got usurped by synthetics and chemicals and petroleum inputs. But nowadays, we're starting to come back around to probiotic growing and living soil and nutrient teas. What was the reigning headspace when you first started writing for High Times? I think that's a pretty accurate observation. Uh, You know, I've seen some memes where they show black and white pictures and they say everything was grown organic uh, back in the day. And and that's true. And then um, I think the reigning kind of uh, space when I first started with High Times was a lot of synthetics, you know, salt-based fertilizers, be it, um, you know, hydro, 
hydro uh, was huge. And you can do organic in hydro, but that wasn't, it's not very convenient. It's a little bit difficult and challenging. Uh, so the uh, synthetics were, were kind of it. I mean, they were the big thing. So it's kind of like bypassing all the symbiotic relationship that happens with the, with the microbiome and just giving them, you know, straight injections of, of nutrients that are already broken down and can, you know, penetrate the rhizosphere. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine that breaking everything down in its individuality. I mean, you get the you get the basic components, but you don't you don't get the song. It's kind of like force feeding, yeah. And it's not it's not the symbiotic relationship that happens naturally. So um, you know that you can overfeed really easily. You can burn, and you know you're missing something here and there. And, and ultimately, it reflects in the quality. And that's why why you see it at farmers markets or wherever you go, the grocery store. There's a big push for organics, not only because of the uh, ethical considerations and how it impacts the environment, but, but really the quality of the product is superior. It's just you, you can't really argue against all the years of evolution. You know, so I think, uh, I think the quality is, is really key. Specifically on the quality, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of probiotic flour, but what would you say are the, are the data points of quality that, that uh, sets probiotic flours apart? Well, and that's going to be a difficult thing because I don't think it will reflect in a lot of the tests. And, and there's going to have to be a big paradigm shift because people are looking like at THC percent and they're thinking about it as alcohol percent. Oh, my God, this flower has 30 percent THC. I'm going to get completely blotto. And what, what they're not looking at is uh, terpenes and all the uh, entourage uh, endocannabinoids that are there. And it's, it's, it's another symbiotic relationship that they all uh, work together. And you can't test for sativa versus indica. There's no test that really tells you the effect that it's going to have. So what I've found is, and what I've always bred for and grown for, is really the flavor and the profile, of course. But the uh, because I've, I've always been against the kind of couch lock. I mean, there's a time and place for it, for indicas. You know, if you want that... Uh, um, if you want that really sedative type of effect, there's definitely a place for it. But, uh, you know, during the daytime, I, I like to have sativas. And those are more difficult to grow. They also uh, yield less and whatnot. But the, uh, the uh, I guess I'm getting kind of far afield here. But to, just to bring it back, the what I've noticed is just the, uh, I guess, the flavor, I, w- I would say, in a nutshell. If you had to boil it down to one thing, it's just, it's just the flavor, the taste. And uh, the overall profile. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, the the negative inflected term salts for bottled nutrients already. And you know, um, in in researching veganics for this show, you know, a lot of people were talking. You know, the kind of people who are into veganics and and probiotics, they talk a lot of trash about bottled nutrients. Um, you know, would you talk a little bit to why bottled nutrients are something that people are turning away from? I mean, we've talked about it being the individuated parts, but but why may not that be as successful as building probiotic communities in the soil? Again, it's 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 just boils down to a simple concept. It's it's life. Probiotic that that means life. That's uh, if, if you follow the Latin roots, it's it, that's what it means. So that's what it's all about. When you want to grow in a in a natural environment, is having having those um, you know having that symbiosis, having those bacteria and all the beneficial uh, microorganisms that help break down and work there. The mycorrhizae uh, fungal. Uh, 
um, uh, bacteria that grow the uh, that grow roots or even grow mushrooms. Um, they all work together in a symbiotic fashion, and you can't really get that in a bottle. Uh, they it's it's deprived of oxygen, and and it will die. I mean, you can bottle it, and it will last for a little while, but you know, shelf life is very very short on those. Um, these these bacteria are are sort of sensitive. They need that environment that nurtures them so that's something that you can't really get from a bottle um you can get a lot of food that you can feed the bacteria from a bottle so you can get your guanos and everything else uh, from a bottle and and feed that to them but you can't really get the life from the bottle. I remember when I was first starting to to learn about growing in the early 90s, all anybody wanted to talk to me about was NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And they're like, if you got those three, pump that you know plant full of them, you're good to go. And, and now, as I've matured into my understanding of cannabis, I've realized that there's this whole community of inputs that need to be there and, and how they make each other more bio-accessible to the plant. That is that is completely true, and you can and you can grow decently with those. And people have produced you know um, decent plants with that. And then they talk about flushing, which is something you know that's trying to get the salt the salt fertilizers out of the plant before you before you harvest. And that's just not a necessary step when you're growing organic. You what are you going to flush? You, you don't need to flush anything. So all that has has come from that NPK, that uh, chemical salt based fertilizer centric um, paradigm. And uh, it's yeah, it's really just not necessary. Um, and and you can see it like if somebody doesn't flush and, and you're burning, I, I vaporize, so you can't tell as well. But if you're burning a flower, I actually had um, an old friend of mine convince me to trade him some, and I still regret it to this day. But it was back when I was still combusting, and and uh, instead of uh, it burning to ash, it kind of just melted into this black kind of chunk of coal. Oh, and I think that was just all. It was horrible. It was, I, was, oh, I couldn't even touch it. it. So that was all the salts just burning and melting. And uh, yeah, so obviously not natural, obviously a lot less healthy, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, now that we've given a little context for folks about, you know, where the idea of veganics lives, let's get right into the heart of the matter. Um, you know, um, while I know you have some reservations about veganic growing long term, um, let's set those aside for a moment. We'll talk about those a little bit later. But for now, um, would you go ahead and make the case for veganic growing um, as people see it? Why do people consider avoiding animal inputs um i think uh and uh, unfortunately for us i think that is an ethical concern and that's kind of touchy because everybody has to make their own personal decisions whether it's their diet or how they grow their plant or or anything else to that effect and i think that's where the uh incentive for veganics lies and that they just don't want to use an any animal products now you have to make some concessions with that choice because microorganisms and protozoa and everything that go in there that are beneficial are still considered part of veganics. But in the ethical evaluation, they're saying that they don't have um, you know a consciousness or they don't have a, a nervous system. So so it's okay now. I, to me, that's getting a little tenuous. But again, you know, I'm making my own personal decisions. I, I want to have the op optimal environment for the plant. And plants can and will thrive without any animal inputs. Obviously, if you look at the evolution of our planet, you know, plants were first. They did fine. Um, but if uh, you're walking along your path in Hawaii, for instance, and you see all these all these plants just doing lush and all of a sudden you come across a place where a cow died years ago and it's all of a sudden 10 times as lush right there because it's feeding the plants. So it's hard to argue against uh, input. So I kind of take the ethical 
avenue of looking more at mitigating waste and, and being efficient. So instead of just throwing everything away, like let's say all the uh, compost or uh, all the uh, byproduct from your uh, from your organic dairy production is just going to get pushed away or um, you, you have all this extra fish left over, they're just going to throw it away. I would actually advocate more for using those animal products, using vermiculture and using those because I believe that that provides a more optimal environment. But I can completely relate to uh, the incentive for veganics based on an ethical ethical um, perspective. Right on. Well, some of the people that I talk to who are into veganic growing, you know, they're not necessarily doing it for the moral ethical reasons. They they say they do it because they they think they're getting a healthier plant. And you know, I must admit, I come to this topic with a little bit of skepticism myself, anyway, because I'm a big believer in earthworm castings, and and so. Um, what is the argument that veganic folks make that that a plant will be healthier and more thriving without using animal products? I mean, is the is the idea that the animal products in the in in those proponents' mind somehow is a, is a take from the plant or makes somehow um, some some sort of nutrient less available to the plant? Well, I haven't had a good argument with uh, somebody who's a real strong advocate of veganics, but what I understand is uh, they make the argument that it's cleaner. Now, that's a pretty ambiguous uh, statement to make, and I would, you know, any statement that you're making, it, especially now in the day of it, that we can do testing for for uh, fungus and, and, and everything else and don't have to stay, as we did in Prohibition, kind of under the radar. Now you can bring it out and actually test for these things. So I'd like to see those claims backed up because I don't really see it. You know, the, uh, the, the roots are going to take in what they take. It's not like you're, you know, coating the plant with, uh, you know, all kinds of well, actually, you do if, you, if you're if you're doing foliar feeding, but the, the plants assimilate that, and that's you know that's the whole probiotic approach is that the uh, the the foliar feeding and the and the root feeding it's all feeding the plant, so it you know breaks it down. But I don't see veganics as being cleaner. I just I don't see any scientific uh, evidence to support that. You know, to now a there could. There could be, um, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, there could be um, empirical evidence. I mean, maybe, and, and I haven't seen a side-by-side. -side. I, 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 tested, I tested it myself and was growing that way for uh, a, a while just, just to see how it would work because I, was, uh, I felt a little responsibility since I was writing for High Times um, at the time and, and I wanted to um, you know, test these things to see how viable they were, although I wasn't necessarily advocating it. But I can also see it like if somebody's immunocompromised, say, and they don't want to be around any animal products because they don't want to risk having um, that uh, bacteria um, I can understand that, too. So there's a lot of reasons that people could make that individual choice, but I don't see it, uh, the quality argument, as being valid. Right on. What that's I'm, what that's I'm, my opinion. Yeah, right on. Well, that's why you're here. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, I, um, uh, I'm starting to get the idea the, between the, the research I did in advance and chatting with you and others that, that, you know, a lot of the people who go to veganics, it may, not, it, it may be for um, – for outside reasons, either moral, ethical, or maybe because they're immune compromised and they don't want to have uh, animal products, they don't want to work with them themselves with their hands or, um, or, or something else. Um, um, and and I'm, I'm realizing that to a certain degree, veganics may be kind of like its own response 
to not wanting to use bottled nutrients. Like, like it is a, obviously veganics is a subset of, of probiotic growing, but maybe it's just, you know, the more hardcore version, a uh, hardcore reaction against uh, salt and synthetics. And, and that's an interesting idea. That could be, you know, it's kind of being defined as we go. So, um, uh, you know, I guess the uh, the people who are doing it and advocating it are defining it uh, as 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 they go. As I did when I wrote um, the High Organics article in High Times in two thousand and four, I was just kind of putting a definition out there. And obviously, these definitions can involve uh, the way I look at it. The 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 veganics isn't necessarily probiotic. Um, it won't work without probiotics, I would argue, but it's not necessarily probiotic. In fact, that adds living creatures, which if you're a pure uh, vegan, and I know that they make exceptions for this because, again, that they're saying that that these um, um, microflora do not have uh, nervous systems and whatnot. But um, I mentioned uh, I've, I've written and advocated about uh, a book by Clay. Clay Baxter, which is called Primary Perception, and he's tested plants, actually, and found that they um, do have uh, feelings, you could say. And this is probably a, a kind of an in-depth topic for another discussion, but he tested them with um, a lie detector um, uh, and, uh, and found feedback. And, and in a nutshell, you can read more about that. But, you know, perhaps there's communication and feeling happen that, that we're not aware of, even in vegetative creatures you know you could say so um there's i don't know it just gets a little fuzzy when you start talking about the ethics of it yeah right on i follow that so hey we're late for our first break we're going to go to our first short break and be right back you are listening to shaping fire using pesticides when growing cannabis has been common for a long time nowadays though we know better we know that most pesticides formulated for food crops have never been tested for use with cannabis They've been tested to be eaten in tiny doses. They have not been tested to be inhaled and especially not concentrated into a cannabis oil. Chemical residues from pesticides are not healthy for anyone, but they are especially dangerous for patients. For commercial cannabis growers, this has become very impactful. Cannabis enthusiasts and patients have gotten educated enough that they avoid growers who used pesticides. Not only that, but states across the country have begun making pesticide testing mandatory on all licensed cannabis crops. The time has come to find a better way to fight garden pests than covering your cannabis in chemicals. And there is a better way. Let some good bugs fight your bad bugs. Beneficial insects and predatory mites have come a long way since we were buying ladybugs online and putting them in the grow room and just hoping for the best. Natural enemies biocontrol can help you solve pest issues without using chemicals. Natural Enemies founder Shane Young learned best practices from working in the ornamental plant industry and has fine-tuned those strategies specifically for large cannabis crops. Shane works with commercial cannabis clients across the country to ensure that they keep their crops safe and pest-free without the use of chemicals. Natural Enemies has proven solutions for spider mites, aphids, thrips, russet mites, broad mites, shore flies, white fly, and others too. You can rely on Natural Enemies for expertise and excellent service. For more information, go to shapingfire.com forward slash natural enemies or simply click on their banner in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is legendary probiotic grower and high times writer, Nebu. 
So, Nebu, before the break, we were talking about um, veganics as an idea that that some people have used and some people have used it as a bridge towards probiotics as they move away from the bottle and and this idea of veganics that has lasted for a while. And I got to tell you, you know, when I was researching the show, trying to find an expert to bring on, um, you know, pretty much the only person that came up anywhere was Kyle Cushman. And, you know, as I dug more and more and, and I asked... Asked my compatriots there on the on the Probiotic Farmers Alliance group on Facebook, you know, about who they would recommend. You know, your name came up, and so and so I had to, you know, hunt you hunt you up. Uh, uh, I appreciate and, that and find out where you were. Um, and, and the thing is, is that you know, veganic seems like this thing that that has just kind of always been there, maybe, but it hasn't really gotten popular, and 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 there aren't very many people evangelizing it anymore. So my question for you is, you know, did veganics ever be Become popular, or has it always been this kind of minor specialty ideology? Yeah, I think it's been pretty minor. I didn't know. I mean, after I wrote about it in two thousand and four, I, I I don't think anybody that I know of was actually doing it. And I know Kyle uh, started uh, his company around it, but that was you know a decade later, or you know it, it was quite a bit later. So I haven't seen it be a really popular thing. Um, and uh, but I think, you know, I think it, it's a good thing if it stays true to all the other positive aspects of growing. And when you talk about shipping soil and things like that, you, you, you know, in plastic bags you, and the, the trucking and, and all that, you reach the point of diminishing returns on the benefit of it pretty quickly as opposed to if you can do it yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, I got to admit, you know, the more we talk about this, I, I think that my understanding of veganics is um, evolving. When when we came to the show, I was kind of expecting this show to be making a case for veganics that people could either, you know, take or leave. Um, but I'm what I'm starting to realize is that, you know, veganics is almost like a straw man. Like, yeah, veganics is way better than using bottled nutrients. Um, and, and yet you might not have the best thriving plants if, as if you used some animal inputs, but really it sounds like, um, it's almost like a straw man, a foil to have a discussion around that it might not actually be, um, a, a, a cogent strategy in and of itself, but more like an inroad to, to probiotics and using nutrient teas. I agree. Yeah, I can see it as as being a uh, um, a stepping stone, as it were, um, for for some folks. And I think the uh, when you when you introduce all the creatures again, it kind of goes against the veganic principles um, because now you're dealing with animal products. And I guess my concept and and my principles are just I want to provide everything I can, uh, obviously ethically, um, to nurture the plant as much as possible. And it, it seems it seems counterproductive to me to uh, get away from all the creatures that have evolved around it, whether it's vermiculture using um, uh, seabird guano, bat guanos, fish emulsion, all those things. Those are just tools that will really, really um, provide life for your plants and really help them thrive. So I don't have the ethical uh, concerns or hang-ups or whatever you want to call it that I need to or, or the immune system that I'm worried about. In fact, you know, I'm very probiotic in my own own health. Uh, so I don't need to worry about any of those things in my own personal growth. But again, 
I can see how people do it, and and I say kudos to them. I think I think it's a good thing if they're if they're doing it, um, doing it themselves. Now, if you're buying bags and bags of fertilizer, having them shipped in, it's all dead. It's in plastic. Um, then I really don't see any ethical advantage to that. But again, it could still be. Uh, an immune system concern. So if you have to have a real sterile environment for yourself, that is unfortunate because uh, a sterile environment is the perfect environment for pathogens to evolve. Even our own, bo- our own bodies, the ratio of bacteria to human cells, we have more bacteria than human cells in our, in our own um, biome. And uh, that's something that you need to feed and nurture. And uh, um, our health is dependent upon that. Same, same with the plant, the phylosphere, the, the leaf surface is alive. If you populate that with compost teas, you will not have the diseases like powdery mildew won't be able to start as much if you have a, a, a good foliar feeding regimen. And same with the rhizosphere, the root zone. If you're feeding that, you, you're getting the, uh, um, the symbiotic relationship of breaking down all the nutrients and it's just giving the plant everything it needs. So if I'm drawing on animal and vegetable, I will really draw on, on everything, you know, that I can. I'm not like sacrificing animals or doing anything, you know, crazy. But if it's a waste product, especially that I'm taking advantage of, then um, I feel very good about it. And the plants plants show it. Right on. That makes sense. Let's let's dig into that bit about how why the plants are doing better with animal um, uh, inputs. So I recognize that you're you're potentially going to go over my head here, since you know I'm I, I still consider myself a, a novice grower compared to somebody like you who's been doing it for thirty years or more. But um, so let, let's talk a little bit about the biochemistry behind it. So so when you're not using animal inputs. You know what is being missed at, at at the micro level that the plant is looking for that it can get from uh, you know uh, uh, worm castings and and you know using you know extra fish guts and things like that that you might throw into uh, into <laughs> your hole. You know what 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 is the plant pulling from these nutrient wise that it's not going to pull from pure um, plant sources. Again, that goes to the symbiotic relationship of the uh, the like nitrogen fixing bacteria, all the all the different bacteria or the mycorrhizae. Well, I guess the, the the fungi isn't considered a creature, but I would have to consider the uh, bacteria and the nematodes and all those things as creatures, and all the bacteria that goes with them, all the life that goes with it, helps break down the uh, a lot of the nutrients. Some of them are already bioavailable, but it's all about bioavailability, and that's all those bacteria and all those creatures add to that. Right on. That makes sense to me. And so, yeah. so, so if you were, if, if, the, if the goal was to produce, you know, we were using, we were kind of throwing around the term clean product earlier. Um, yeah. um, you know, if, if one wanted to use um, um, animal inputs and yet they still wanted to try to respect producing a, a clean product like somebody who had a veganic mindset, you know, was trying to attain. What are some of the better animal inputs that could be used that, um, that both have a symbiotic relationship with the soil, um, but also won't sludge up your soil? Yeah, I would say, um, I, I would focus on your community, let's say. So you, you're on Vashon Island, right? Let's say that you've got maybe a relationship with an organic dairy there and you want to start vermiculture. So you take all the uh, 
all the uh, droppings from the cows and all the manure and everything, and then you feed that to your to your worm bin and they process it. That is going to when it's done, it's going to be uh, uh, so beneficial for your soil. And let's say you have some relationships established with fisheries, and instead of um, them throwing away the fish heads and the bones or whatever parts they don't use, you can emulsify that, and then you could use that in your compost teas as well as your other. You know, it's kind of the biodynamic approach. You use everything you can. Now there's there's going to be other considerations especially um, now uh, uh, since uh, Fukushima happened you may you may be a little bit cautious about using those fish you might want a little Geiger counter there to see um, it, it's sad it's sad to have to consider that but you know th- there maybe that's another uh, um, bonus for um, uh, for uh, veganics uh, because uh, as the uh, 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 radioactive particles become bioaccumulated in the food chain, that's going to be something that people have to consider more and more. It's unfortunate. I hate to bring that up, but uh, there's been studies, and I mean, there were three total meltdowns that happened, and um, you know, now they're seeing uh, the cesium signature you know, right on the shores here in Oregon, and that's pr- I don't see that stopping anytime soon. So that's another consideration. But um, I think what I like to focus on is is using the waste products. I guess so, I mean to me it's crazy that there's these berries harvested. They throw away the fruit and then they bring them in uh, hundreds and hundreds of tons and then they burn them at 400 to 500 degrees and then everybody drinks it. I'm talking about coffee, and there's acrylamides in there, and that's a toxin. It's very acidic, but I'm not going to, you know, who am I to judge? You know, everybody, you know, likes their stimulant and whatnot, but I could take all the uh, coffee grounds and uh, use that in compost. So, um, I think you just have to kind of think outside the box and, and look, and, and the neat thing, I guess, that I would like to see is, is people use their own solutions as opposed to, you know, getting some store-bought thing that's shipped in that's completely dead. Sure, that's going to generate some revenue for the producer and whatnot, but you're also getting all that plastic and, you know, there's the shipping and, and all the rest of it. And you could be establishing local ties with your community and using all your waste. To me, that makes a lot more sense. And you just have to look at it very closely because you could have veganics. You have to stay away from GMO soy. You have to watch out for um, cottonseed that's you know super contaminated with pesticides. You, you have to keep your eye, no matter what you decide, you have to really investigate it thoroughly. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. We're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. Businesses everywhere are constantly striving to reach out to people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into a relationship with their customers is essential. That is what we offer. We will explain your service or product and what sets it apart as desirable and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot, you can do that, too. Because the podcast is young, but growing at an exceptionally fast rate, if you become an advertiser on the Shaping Fire podcast now, you are going to pay a fraction of the cost we'll be asking for in just a few months. And yet everyone listening both now and to the back catalog of interviews later will hear about your company again and again for years. It's a great deal for you. Pay a small amount now because the show is new, but take advantage of the huge listening audience we will have forever. 
Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and newsletter advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is legendary probiotic grower and High Times writer, Nebu. So before the, before the break, I really don't like how I, I gave your, what you had to say negative context. I said, damned if you do, damned if you don't, after you were talking about you know, making sure that your, your inputs were clean. And I, and I think I took the positive thing that you were saying about building relationships with farmers and I think I just I think I spun it the wrong wrong way because in the end you weren't talking about being suspicious about everybody's inputs. You were talking more about being an active edu- you know being an active learner and getting into relationship with your community, right? Yeah, well, I think, and I can understand, I can empathize with your perspective because th- there's a lot out there that's pretty heavy, you know, and it, it's easy to get frustrated and just, ah, it's just too much. You know, everything is bad, everything's poisonous or whatever. And it, it's challenging, you know, living uh, in our highly toxic environment of today. But if you evaluate everything, uh, I still think there's paths that you can take. And to look on the positive side of it, yes, I think the one of the great paths that you can take is developing those relationships. And, and you know, I used your island as an example, and I think that's a neat community to draw from. And, and that's what you can do, and you can really personalize your approach by using all these um, philosophies or um, principles and just applying them to your to your own situation and there's really not one right way to do it and I know a lot of times people want to just tell me the answer how do I do this and 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 there's a there are there's just so many ways that and you can personalize it so I think it's good for people to always be learning always be inspecting and uh Ideally, you will develop those relationships and and mitigate some waste in your community and 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 uh, you know optimize and and build those things. So I, I think it's uh, it can be a really positive thing, even though again there are challenges for sure. And I think that I think that's a good time to point out you know bioregionalism. You know, uh, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of wild crafted nutrient teas, and yeah. um, and you know when when we do this show, you know, I always get emails from people like, oh, you know, the comfrey that you talked about, you know, with your guest that doesn't grow wild where I live. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what what do you have to recommend that's you know where I live in Kansas or wherever it may be? And and I oh, think yeah. that's that's kind of a good point to make is that um, you know. Yeah. If, if you live here on on Vashon Island, um, you're you know you're you're working with uh, you know um, uh, rabbit pellets and oh man we've got a tofu factory on the island so we get tons of <laughs> okara you know we get lots of okara whereas whereas you know wherever um, you know any particular grower lives they've got to find out what the um, inexpensive healthy waste products are around them to use and I think that's you know I think that adds adds a little um, extra exclamation point to what you were saying, um, that it really is about where you are. Do your homework on, on what kind of probiotic inputs you can have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and find out what they're putting into their products so you know that you're clean. But, you know, get in relationship with your local business folk and, and find out what they're trying to get rid of. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, uh, especially when you're talking the soil medium, because that's that's a huge thing. Um, I will. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because it, what you're talking about is a little bit of the nativist argument, and um, uh, you can take that to an extreme. And and I really want to draw. I'm a citizen of the world. Um, I'm a beekeeper too, and I get a lot of. Uh, uh, I've seen a lot of people talk about. You know, this is native. This is invasive species, and but people are really behind honeybees 
even though they're not native to North America, but we would be, you know, kind of lost without them uh, in our current agriculture. So you have to kind of evaluate these things. Not everything's so cut and dry, but the bulk stuff, if, you, if you're talking the soils and things that are just really cost prohibitive and silly to have shipped in. I mean, if you're doing a 10,000 square foot grow or acres, you don't want to be shipping in the soil. You probably want to be working with what you've got and amending it with different things. Now, I like to draw on the entire world because I want to grow the absolute best. So, um, sure, I'm using soil here. I'm using a lot of local ingredients, 90%. But if I'm getting some fossilized uh, seabird guano from Peru, boom, I'll use it. Or if I'm getting something, some uh, fulvic mineral from Kentucky, you know, because there's a great organic source there or diatomaceous earth from a mine in California, whatever it is, neem doesn't grow here. So um, I I use a lot of neem, whether it's neem meal or neem oil. Um, So I'm drawing on all these resources to produce the most optimum thing. And that benefits the people. It's a fair trade, um, fair market type of uh, situation. So it's benefiting people that just aren't, you know, not just in my local community, but again, those relationships in the local community too, uh, you can bind it all together and uh, create kind of the best environment, the best of both worlds. So before we wrap up, because we're, we're almost done here, um, uh, it's kind of funny. I'm like, before we wrap up not having a show making a case for veganics. <laughs> so, so um, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was trying to find you, you know, through uh, a few different um, online forums and such, you know, uh, uh, folks, you know, knew about your, your High Times articles, but all anybody wanted to talk about were these, these um, strains that you had put out as a breeder. And, and, okay. and, you know, and everybody's all like, have him talk about his strains. And so why don't you take a couple <laughs> minutes and just tell us about some of the strains that you put out there and, you know, just a little bit about you as a breeder, because I know that um, I know I'll get emails about like, why didn't you ask him? So why don't you just share a little bit before we wrap up? Oh, OK, that sounds like a whole nother podcast. But yeah, the uh, uh, so I was involved, uh, geez, I guess, you know, since 97, I've been uh, breeding and developing different hybrids. Some of the ones that are out there are that. Jackie O, which is a Jacqueline Orange, and uh, um, there's Cherry Melon or Cherry Lime Ricky that was really popular. Um, the Black Russian, I was the original developer of that, and um, some other people uh, developed it into F2, but kind of sold it as an F1. Um, there's been a lot of hybrids developed uh, from mine, and then when Overgrow kind of got busted by the Canadian Mounties, I decided it would be probably best to go underground again with that. But I've never stopped breeding. I've been working on some CBD varieties now and still working on a lot that express purple and always with a focus on the sativas, the the real functional um, high. I've always been kind of opposed to the uh, the couch lock. Just I really need, uh, you know, the uh, the euphoric and the working, working uh, headspace. And uh, that's that's been my forte. And the CBDs are really interesting, too, because of the the uh, legal aspects of it and also the uh, uh, the physiological aspects of it. And uh, so that's been pretty exciting. And that, that's that's what I'm working on presently. So we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully I'm able to still make some progress. And with recreational happening more and more, I may actually be able to kind of come out of the basement and do some really uh, big time selection with really big numbers because again all this stuff that I've developed has been kind of during the prohibitionist era and it uh, makes it difficult you know to be uh, quite frank because <laughs> you don't have you don't have the numbers that you could normally draw on but I've, I've still made some good progress and uh, 
um, I'm happy that there's folks out there that uh, remember me or uh, are still enjoying the hybrids that I've released over the years. Yeah, you're both the both the cherry lime and the black Russian got a lot of love when I was looking for you. Um, people were saying specifically about the black Russian about um, how unique it was, and then how they had used it in their own breeding programs because um, it was such a great place to start. You know, and they were like, you know, speaking of you and you know reverent tones and stuff. So, so yeah, that's great. Yeah, it was it was nice coming across those folks on my way to you. So, so anyway, yeah. uh, we're, we're set for the day for today, Nebu. Thank you so much for taking okay. time to be on the show. And, you know, you obviously have got um, so much more information in you. I appreciate you coming to talk about this small area of veganics. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll see about having you on the show again down the line about, about one of the other areas that you are also an expert in. I really appreciate the invitation and time, Shango. Thank you very much. Nebu is a legendary breeder, probiotic grower, and high times writer. You can find out more about him at his website, nebuhybrids.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. N-E-B-U-H-Y-B-R-I-D-Z.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.